0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I'm so glad to have you here. Before we get into today's today's episode, I want to tell you about something that I'm doing later this month, you know, in January. So I'm hosting a meetup for the podcast, the Forward Thinking Founders Meetup. I'm inviting every guest I've ever had on. I'm inviting any angel investor who's an angel investor in the podcast and it's gonna be a lot of fun. We're having it at a great location in San Francisco in late January, and I would love for you to come. Right now, there's two ways for you to come, really. Um, You can buy a ticket on Eventbrite for 50 bucks, um, or you can do what I want you to do in the first place and become an angel investor in the podcast. If you become an angel investor in the podcast, you get to come to this meetup uh, you know, complimentary to what you pay, which is ten dollars a month or a hundred dollars a year, on top of all the other benefits you get for being a, uh, an angel investor. Um, if you go on my Twitter, which is Matt underscore Sherman, you'll see that I am playing some like interesting games. If you want to come for free, you have to find someone with a promo code. So if you're interested in doing something like that, head over to Twitter at Matt with one T underscore Sherman. But if you just want to go, you don't want to play games, you just want to meet amazing guests that I've had on the podcast, just become an angel investor. You can do this at glow.fm slash F20 are what you get is obviously access into the meetup you get premium content you get an online community and you get my highest graces and my thank yous because i really appreciate the supporters so you know that's all i have right now we're gonna get into the podcast but if you want to come to the meetup then become an angel investor or pay 50 bucks up to you with that let's get into today's episode run it Alright, how is it going everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future and how the two collide. Today I'm very excited to be talking to Sean Linehan who is a co-founder of Placement. Sean, welcome to the show. How is it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. I, you know, As I mentioned before we started recording, when I First, discover placement. You know, a couple months ago, I got very excited, and now I'm I'm, I'm excited to dive in to what you're working on. So, with that, let's just kind of start with people that may not know what placement is. What are you working on with your company, Placement?
1: So, Placement, we like to bill it as everyone's talent agent. What this means is that we are taking a service that historically has only been available to the highest, most prestigious levels of talent. You know, basketball stars rock stars, actors, people that make millions of dollars a year. And we're bringing a lot of the things that those folks get down to more people. Uh, Specifically, what we're doing is we're helping people that are in business jobs or uh, technology-related jobs, sales jobs, those types of jobs, um, get better jobs. And we do that specifically by focusing in on the geographic component of their work. So what we do is we help people find the best geographies for their particular skill set. Sometimes, by the way, that, that is actually the geography that they're in, uh, regardless of the conclusion of, of where it is that they should be getting the job. We then help them find that next step for them. So what we found is that most people in the labor market are not in a job that is paying them their optimal amount. And beyond that, you know, most people don't love their job. So what we do is we work with people. Uh, and with a pretty hands-on approach to understand what are they good at, what are they looking to do, what are their career dreams and aspirations, and we help them jumpstart those dreams and aspirations by getting their next great job.
0: So well, there's a few things to dive into here. So you aren't helping someone ultimately you're not helping like a, I don't know, a salesperson break into a developer job. You're helping a, like for, as an example, a salesperson be a salesperson in another geography, but get paid a bunch more. Is that ultimately kind of the, the thesis?
1: That's right. What I will say is that one of the things that we do that most people aren't necessarily great at doing themselves is we help evaluate people's skills take inventory of those skills, and uncover opportunities that use their existing skill set that they may not have already known about. And so in that way, we expand the opportunity set that they're looking at. But in so far as teaching people new skills, you're right. We're in the business of helping people learn how to get jobs and quarterbacking that process for them. We're not in the business of helping people learn how to do jobs. We expect that they already are able to do that. So in a
0: whole wave of ISA-driven schools that help you go from one industry to another and just a bunch of different products in that realm, this seems, I'll say the word, this seems almost like contrary and they're like, no, you can stay where you are. We'll just help you get paid more. How would you get, how'd you come up with this idea or what's the why behind placement?
1: Yeah, and for the listener base, who's not as familiar with placement, we, we do use income share agreements to monetize the service. So it's $0 upfront. We teach people basically how to get their next best job, bringing to bear tons of economic research and expertise. And we monetize that with a 10% income share agreement once we're successful in getting them that next great job. Um, so we are sort of following or part of that larger wave of income sharing startups So you're right, we we do take a very different approach. And it really comes from both my own personal experience as well as my co-founder's personal experience. So my co-founder, an incredible person named Katie Kent, she previously was the Director of Outcomes at Galvanize, which is one of the big early bootcamp players. At Galvanize, she helped hundreds of students get great jobs in data science and engineering and what she learned in developing that program there was that beyond the, the the reskilling, the folks that were coming through the program had no idea how to run a great job search. So the demonstration of their skills was pretty well trained through the program, but demonstrating that they were a great culture fit, communicating how they were the best employee for the firm, that was something that most people had never had any training in doing. And so that was her experience. My experience was that I came from a city called San Bernardino, which is really a working class town, not a lot of great high trajectory jobs there. And I moved out of San Bernardino to San Francisco. I came to the Bay Area about 10 years ago. That physical relocation transformed everything about my career opportunity. Now I'll say, I went through the university system. I went to UC Berkeley. I sort of followed that traditional career path and that worked for me. My best friend, however, didn't follow that traditional path. He didn't go to university. But in 2014, when I graduated college, I tapped him and said, hey, come move in with me. The job path, career path that you're on in San Bernardino isn't going anywhere. Come to the Bay Area and try it here. It's a completely different world, trust me. And in the years since then, Without getting a new, a, a new degree, without having ever gone to college, he's managed to triple his income. Now, that's an incredible change. And even when you adjust for cost of living, he's in the East Bay, he's more than doubled his take-home salary. That's without changing uh, careers per se. That's without going through a big, expensive retraining program. And what that learned or helped me learn is that just simply relocating, just simply being in a place where opportunities are abundant, makes you more eligible and more likely to have a high-impact life and a high-impact career. So for us, we don't think that the the reskilling programs, the training programs, the boot camps are bad. We think those are incredible, and we love the work that all of those teams are doing. We think simply that there is a large category of people who, first and foremost, should try being in the right place, before they go and put themselves into a huge amount of debt or take a big risk on making a career change. It turns out that so many people can do so well simply by being in a better location for their skill set. That's,
0: uh, that's awesome. I, I really like that. And it makes me kind of want to dive into the user experience of someone who, um, who I guess is being placed on your platform. So let's say I I'm, a, I'm in growth. Let's say I'm a, I'm a marketing person. And let's say, uh, let, let's just start there. And I want to make more money. How, do I? What's the experience from there? Do I go to placement.com and put in a query? Can you walk through what the experience is from end to end for me if I wanted to get placed somewhere else?
1: Yeah, so the first step is that you, you There's two, there's two channels basically. You can go through the website. You can apply to the program directly if you're high intent. If you think, you know, I really, I really want to move, I'm pretty confident that I'm ready for a change. You can go online, uh, go through the the application flow, give us all your information, and what's going to happen is on the back end, we're going to go do a deep dive analysis on what you've told us about yourself, and evaluate whether we think that, given what you've said, that there's a, a high confidence opportunity for you to earn more cash. Uh, if you're lower intent, you can just go to placement.com slash earning dash power. That uh, is a self-serve tool. You can go in, enter your job title, enter your, your current city, and enter your current income. And we'll do a sort of quick and dirty analysis. Uh, you know, we gather information from all types of government bureaus, from all different sources around what are available jobs, what are those jobs paying, what are people historically getting paid in various regions, and what's the cost of living around the country. So we'll go ahead and basically create what we call the earning power report. The earning power report gives you a first pass understanding of uh, whether or not there are high confidence opportunities for you to earn more. If there is, you can go ahead and talk to our sales team. Um, You'll ultimately wind up in the same funnel as if you had originally signed up on the application flow. If we accept working with you, and and this right now is a a big gate, right? So we we do basically um, aptitude testing, personality testing. We do these assessments to figure out if you are a good fit for the program at this time. And we're constantly working to expand the definition of what it means to be a good fit for us right now. But if we accept working with you, then you sign an income share agreement with us and we go ahead and get started. And what that looks like today is we basically start going through a training program, teaching you how to, one, tell your story. Two, after we've uncovered information about you, we just rewrite your resume for you and get that into good shape. Because frankly, it's a, it's a very specific skill that doesn't help anybody do their job. It's only good for helping people get good jobs. So we just do it for you. Um, we do mock interviews with people, specifically targeted on the companies they're most interested in, and the job titles that they're most interested in, and you know, it, you'd be surprised how impactful doing interview training with an expert can be. We've seen people go from getting rejected a thousand times or more, more literally a hundred times in interviews, to 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 winning almost every interview that they go and do uh, as a result of this this mock interview training. We then once you're basically ready to, to do the interview process, once we have high conviction in your interviewing skills, that you've nailed your story, that everything looks good, we then go ahead and just start quarterbacking the job search process for you. So, you know, in, in the broader economy, uh, a college graduate is expected to have something like five to ten jobs within the first ten years of leaving college. That's a lot more job searching than people have ever done in the past and nobody likes job searching, or at least very few people do. And the reality is is that as a job searcher, you have so much less information than the company does about how do these systems work, what's the best way to conduct this process, so on and so forth. So placement comes in with that knowledge, and we do all the grindy work for you. So you don't go and apply to hundreds of jobs or do anything like that. We on the back end, if we have a relationship with the company, we'll go ahead and make that connection directly. If we don't, we'll go ahead and uh, acquire that relationship with the company on your behalf and get you in the door with a warm introduction. At the point that you get a job offer, we then help with negotiation assistance. So we bring best practices to bear there. We help equip you with market knowledge that isn't available on the public internet to help you best negotiate the best offer. Uh, All that together, we wind up getting people uh, anywhere between a 15% to, in some cases, a, a 300% raise.
0: Okay, so this is pretty much the dream for probably like everyone listening right now if anyone's thinking about wanting to get paid more. like It just blows my mind how big of the opportunity is here. Um, if you're open to it, I do want to dive in a little bit into the like, the how the ISA works because um, like it's something like I would even consider for myself. Like is it the, this thing where you still want so much more money with placement that even with the ISA, their take home is still like far more than it would have been than if they wouldn't have moved? Can you dive into that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So most of the companies that are in the ISA space are using a standard agreement from one of the big ISA vendors. We don't, we actually wrote our own ISA contract and we did that because we wanted to make sure that it was completely aligned with the success of our customers. So when you work with placement, we start with your current annual income and your, the current cost of living of the city that you're in, right? We then adjust what your current income is to be adjusted for the cities that you're targeting so for example if you're going from a low cost of living place to a high cost of living place we're going to adjust your income up so that we have an equivalent income if you're doing the reverse we're going to adjust it down so if you make two hundred thousand dollars in san francisco per year and you're thinking of moving to for the sake of example austin texas the sort of equivalent income is about hundred thousand dollars so we start with that as our baseline And then the contract is written such that if you don't make more than that amount, you just don't pay us. If you do make more than that amount, one of two things happens. We take 50% of the raise up to a maximum of 10% of your total income. So in this way, it sort of ramps smoothly up from your current income to a plateau of 10% of of your total income, and that's it. Uh, there's basically no case where you're financially worse off uh, than not working with placement.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I uh, yeah, I really admire kind of, one, the fact that you built your own, um, like, it's your own ISA. You're not using third party. It means you're really serious about it and just how you do the pricing. Um, I want to go back to where I first heard about you. Um, which was somewhere on Twitter after your, your huge launch. Um, And I actually wanted to dive into um, how you launched placement because it's, there's only a, you know, a couple of, a handful of startups I can think of that, it's, they seem to be buzzing everywhere, at least on Twitter, that they really get the word out. And it seemed like you were one of them, at least in my opinion. So can you let me know, like, how would you think about the placement launch? How did you get the TechCrunch article? Can you go into uh, kind of how you prepared for all of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was a lot of genius, to be honest. There There really is two aspects to it. One, we are... There was a post by somebody at at, at Andreessen Horowitz called Product Zeitgeist Fit, which is basically trend jockeying and uh, placement was used as an example of a company with with that. And really, I mean, we're sort of just at the intersection of a lot of things that people are thinking about. Um, From the sort of contractual or legal technology side, we are using income share agreements. That's new, that's interesting. People are, are thinking about that as a, as, a, as a new tool. And so we're sort of one of the few non-school players in that space. So that sort of makes us in the conversation. Beyond that, there's a lot of social conversation about the future of work around the role that geography plays on lifetime earning opportunity. It's something that um, Raj Chetty, the economist, has been talking a lot about and so in a, a, a non-trivial capacity, that work influenced our decision to start the business, but also then gives us a sort of wind at our back. Um, you know, really it's on from a, the, the, the advice that I've always been given uh, is you want to be at the forefront of a wave. And with placement, we're fortunately at the forefront of a really, really big wave caused by a couple smaller underlying waves. So that's one piece. The other part is just relationships we've been in the Valley for a long time, both my co-founder and, and myself. And so we know a lot of people, um, you know, we obviously were, were writing a, a very successful or coming off a very successful stint at Flexport. Um, that was where I was before starting placement. I was the VP of product from when we were a little baby company all the way up to over a billion dollars. Uh, and so in that capacity, you know, there's some personal buzz that comes with that is people like to talk about people that they think are going to succeed. Um, and you know, I, I appreciate the the votes of confidence there and I hope that we can uh, deliver, but certainly I think that that played into some part of, uh, you know, the, the buzz there.
0: Definitely. Uh, that, that makes sense. Um, I actually, uh, How much do you – well, I actually want to go back to Flexport for for a second. Um, Do you – what have you taken from your time at Flexport – um, and growing from such a small company to obviously a big company, um, what skills, network, knowledge do you think you've taken the most from Flexport, and now brought it over to placement that gives you, in some ways, almost an unfair advantage of if I wanted to start this company, where I like, you know, I don't have any of those insights.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Flexport is one of the few companies that I would, I would put into the successful bucket of operationally intensive technology businesses. So the sort of prior couple decades of successful technology companies were really focused on selling software. But at Flexport, what we did was not sell software, we sold logistics management and services, delivered and assisted with software, made intelligent using software, but fundamentally what we sold was a physical logistics service And the reality of that business is that the underlying asset providers, the ocean network, the air carriers, the truckers, the governmental agencies that were being regulated by are not digitally enabled, which meant that we had to develop this internal muscle of building operationally intensive products and processes that involved real humans. And we were one of the few companies that got started with this early and have succeeded in a, in a large way. And so having been able to be a part of that journey, uh, both my co-found, co-founder and I, means that we are uniquely equipped to build an operationally intensive business. And Placement is by no means a software company. We don't think about ourselves as selling software. What we are is a talent business. We are in the weeds with people helping manage their careers. And this historic view of scalability in Silicon Valley is if you have to add headcount as you grow revenue, your business isn't, quote unquote, scalable. But I just don't agree with that notion, right? If you are Starbucks or you are Walmart, anybody looking at that business would say that's a scalable business, despite the fact that those two companies are, are some of the largest employers in the world. And so I think it's finally coming into silicon valley's consciousness that you can build a hyper growth technology company that's not strictly a software company and i'd like to think that me and my co-founder are some of the most well-versed in the techniques that are required to do that
0: so you mentioned Um, a couple answers ago that you were riding a you're in front of a wave and you know a a pretty big wave that's kind of I feel like forced by a few smaller waves Um, and I want to talk about the the future of work and specifically the the power of the individual there's been a lot of I don't know like Articles, blogs, podcasts of people saying that like the power is being shifted from the institutions to the individual in in, in many different kind of aspects. I'm kind of wondering, do you have any, um, like, is this a theory that you have in one of the driving forces behind placement and or like on a more broad basis? What do you think the future of work is going to be like if you have to make some predictions, at least in the, the discipline that you're working in right now?
1: I strongly agree that the individual over the next 100 years is significantly more important more important than over the last 100 years. And the reason why I think that that's true is because the dominant source of value creation in the economy has shifted from capital to ideas. It used to be that if you wanted to get rich, you had to be rich, you had to buy machines, you had to deploy those machines at the largest scale with the most brutal of efficiency, uh, and you used labor as a commoditized input to that production process. What we've seen over the last few decades and what I expect to continue to play out is this massive shift towards capital being the most important value driver to ideas being the most important value driver, is that the power of the the single individual can dramatically change the outcome and trajectory of a company. And the leverage that a single individual has is increasing. And so for me, I'm strongly aligned with this idea. And, you know, a a big part of that is saying, look, humans are not fungible commodities. If I pick up one software engineer, one, and drop in another software engineer, one, I actually can't expect the same output. Companies try to treat people as if they can expect the same output and if you squint hard enough, maybe you can convince yourself you're getting the same output, but fundamentally you won't. Uh, and this way you do expect that the economy will become uh, slightly more unequal. Superstars will be able to command uh, a higher percentage or closer to the actual value that they're creating, which is incredible for the individual. Um, but you know, the, the big trick that we're hoping to, to help contribute to is making sure that people that are not superstars are still reaping their fair share of the economy. Um, And yeah, in general, the the other interesting things in terms of where I think the labor market is going and what the contributing factors are, uh, first and foremost, the unemployment rate is at an exceptional low. Uh, We've been on a very long bull run, companies are doing well, they're flush with cash and they're hiring. So for the first time in 50 years, Unemployment has reached a, a new low. That means that individuals just have way more power right now. And so we're really jumping on the opportunity to say, look, the power is in your hands. Let's help you do something with that because we have the information and you have a very in demand skill set. Let's, let's go and, and get, get you what you're worth. Um, the other interesting thing that comes from that is the rise of remote work. If companies are, are so strapped for talent that they're willing to tap the whole country, And willing to let people work in more flexible ways and we hope to be able to help people get those jobs if that's what they're looking to do
0: where do you see remote work in the i mean i guess in technical terms the technology adoption cycle you know 10 years ago vcs wouldn't invest if in san francisco or san hill road wouldn't invest outside of their geo and that's slowly starting to shift there's now even vcs with remote Focus funds and I feel like it's kind of just beginning but I'd love your perspective on um, how far back will the pendulum swing with remote work or where do you think it's gonna settle
1: well you can look at remote work really as a spectrum between fully co-located and fully distributed autonomous across the world I really don't expect that most companies will find success on either extreme Uh, beyond a a, a sort of trivial scale. I think that what you'll see is that labor will sort itself into places that are more amenable to their skill sets um, and their preferences. Like, I don't think that you're going to see another Silicon Valley, San Francisco level engineering hub across the country. But I do think you'll see other very successful second tier hubs that will make for Great places to live um, for people at potentially a different stage in life. Um, I, you know, Phoenix, for example, is a is is a hub for salespeople. Atlanta is pretty good at customer support and customer service. What I think you'll see really is that the companies are going to embrace a distributed trend with multiple offices, where those offices are the the sort of source for a specific type of employee, as opposed to trying to pile everybody into one single office that doesn't necessarily make sense uh, to do from a cost standpoint for either the company or the employee. But I will say that when it comes to thought work, uh, the, the sort of business of ideas, that if you are alone in the mountains as a hermit working for a software company, My expectation is that you will be less effective than somebody that's in a city. And the reason for that is because when you're in a city, you're exposed to so many ideas from so many disparate people working in different fields. And the reality of innovation is that it is synthetic. It comes from the synthesis of more than one different thing, right? Often the way that you come up with new ideas is just merging together to existing ideas to create something brand new. And if you don't have a diverse, robust, ever-changing set of inputs, it's very unlikely that you produce huge innovation. Like there's this massive return to scale that cities have that is constrained by their ability to scale the actual infrastructure of the city. So you're seeing, I think, in my opinion, this rise of the rest of America, because San Francisco, LA and New York have failed to scale the demand to live in these idea-generating cities is far outpacing the ability for these cities to handle new people. And that isn't necessarily technological, it's often cultural or political. Uh, You know, we are able to build big buildings, but the cities won't let you. Regardless of the reason, I think this is an incredible opportunity for the rest of America to get to a critical mass of high-skilled thought workers, such that they can start producing ideas on par with the big, huge hubs, Um, which to me, I think is a a very healthy vision of America is 30 thriving, incredible cities and tech companies on all companies really placing their work in whatever cities make sense. Um, But I still do expect that companies are going to have offices. I don't expect that people are going to be, you know, working from their PJs all across the country and, the middle of the desert or something like that. Like, I just don't expect that to be to be realistic. That's so funny that you mentioned that
0: last point. I feel
1: like remote work is often,
0: or at least the digital nomad movement is like, oh, work on the beach with your laptop. And I'm like, have we ever tried working on the beach? It's so uncomfortable. There's no outlet. Sand gets in your computer. It's, like, I don't know, it's just kind of, kind of funny.
1: <laughs> it's not even fun. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm also a creature of habit personally, so that might bias my viewpoint.
0: For sure, for sure. Uh, Well, so changing the gears a little bit, I'm kind of curious if you were, let's say, 18 again, but but today in 2020, and you, you, let's say money wasn't a concern for learning what you wanted to learn. You could learn anything and do anything. Knowing what you know about the job market, where it's going, what's in demand, and what you're interested in, what would you do if you were 18 today with all the opportunity in front of you?
1: Oh, I'd probably do the same thing I did. I I, so I am a, a software engineer by 15 years of training and practice and experience. I also do product design from about the same length of time. I, I mean, those things are booming job opportunities and I think give you a unique perspective or at least a very useful perspective on how to think in terms of systems, how to think rationally and logically. And so there's this great mixture of both training your brain to think in a way that's very useful in the modern economy and being a highly skilled and highly paid job. If I was 18, I'd say do programming. Not to mention programming is the best activity ever for the right person. Like I can spend literally all day, every day programming. It's just so much fun. So I, yeah, I would probably do that.
0: That kind of brings me to, to a follow-on question. I'm wondering if you just have any thoughts on the rise of, uh, I wouldn't call it like anti-programming, but there's a lot of people that are saying you don't need to learn how to program. You can just do no code. You can you know, use no code tools to build something that would have taken you X amount of time and half the time or et cetera. Do you have any thoughts on this movement or are you even paying attention at all to it?
1: Oh, I love it. I think it's so great. And I I think it's great, not because I expect that these tools are going to make software engineers obsolete or product designers obsolete, but what they do is they provide the opportunity for more people to realize their creative potential and visions in a way that you would just expect dramatically more interesting software and products to get built, right? Like if you can minimize the barriers between idea and execution, that is just guaranteed to increase the amount of awesome things that get put into the world. So I don't think that there's any, I think, you're. I mean, honestly, like I'm a hundred percent on board, right? Especially even if you are, if you have the skills to do some of these things, like I can write software all day long, every day. And I still use Excel to to do basic models and programming because it's super low barriers. It's easy to change. It's easy to throw away. Like there's all these great advantages that you get when you, when you build tools that have lower barriers to entry, not to mention, These are the types of things that can expand the pool of people that go into deeper levels of software engineering or design. In general, I love thinking about what are the career paths that exist in broader society to take somebody from zero knowledge to VP of X at a global Fortune 500 company. And I think an optimal society is one in which it's possible for almost everyone saving you know, the most disabled or, or whatever people. Like there's, there's some people that just need social, social safety uh, nets, but you know, where most people can get on some track and over a long enough time horizon with enough work, find their ways into the highest strata of society. And I think these no-code products are sort of building more on-ramps for more people into the most lucrative new job opportunity of the last hundred years. So I guess they follow on. So I agree
0: with you and I'm not, I'm not a developer and I do use no code tools and I can do things. I never thought I would ever know how to do um, But there does seem to be a, um, at least from what I can see, it might be a small bubble, but I mean, it seems big, like a big backlash against so Like, Oh, no code tools aren't like, like they're nothing. Don't worry about it. It's a trend, et cetera. From like a lot of developers. Do you, um, why do you think, do you think there's some people that think it's like a zero-sum game where if someone else learns no code, like coding will go away? Or like, do you have any thesis on why people might be anti no code and more people creating?
1: Oh, I think there's just a for every for every trend that that some people are excited about, some people are going to hate it, and you know, anything that's worth doing is worth hating. So there's just always going to be some group of people that are vocal against anything that gets popular. So I, w- I wouldn't read into it much beyond that. I, I'm sure the, there's good reasons. I'm sure, you know, for the, for the no-code haters, I, I'm maybe, you know, tweet at me and tell me why your, your hatred is well justified. But I, I expect that you know, there's a thousand reasons that all boil down to something that isn't fundamentally existential to the no-code movement.
0: Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Well, for the last portion of the podcast, I want to focus on one of your uh, proficiencies that you feel like you have over your, your fantastic career in tech. I mean, you've, you've done a lot. And now with placement, I feel like you're about to do so much more. So if you don't mind sharing, what do you think is potentially your strongest proficiency or skill in business or product or development, et cetera, that you feel like, uh, that you feel like you're the strongest at, that you'd be open to going into.
1: Well, I, I sort of cut my teeth and made my name in product management, so we can talk about that.
0: sure uh, let's let's do that. So in regards to product management, I mean, I think it'd be really interesting um, going back to your to your Flexport days, um, so you if you don't mind sharing uh, you join when did you join Flexport in regards to employee number like how how small was the company when you first got in?
1: I joined the company in December of 2014. I was the fourth software engineer and I believe the 20th total employee.
0: And that must have, I'm just, I'm actually just curious. What was it like? Uh, Like obviously you worked up the ranks there um, or it was so small when you joined. Well, actually, I don't want to assume, how did you become the the head or the VP of product? Was it something where, because you were so early, it just, it just happened or did you have to negotiate your way there against other developers? How'd you land
1: in that spot? Good question. I, I mean, really what happened was I just started doing product work. I took projects that weren't very well spec'd, potentially didn't have design and I put together all of the skills that I have and, and just did what I hoped everyone else would would see as great work. You know, I chimed in in a way that I think most engineers don't normally chime in. And actually at Berkeley studied business, I didn't study software engineering. And so I was able to bring uh, a well-reasoned business perspective, thinking about economics, thinking about finance into product decisions. That sort of evolved uh, from me product managing my own projects to then product managing other people's projects in addition to my own because other engineers found it you know difficult or not within their set of interests to talk to the operations team to talk to customers meanwhile i loved doing those things and so i really stepped into the product management role and once i once i stepped into that role i started thinking about how are we going to grow the team how are we going to structure this team how are we going to build out the product such that it's going to be set up for success in the future as we add, you know, a hundred engineers, you know, dozen product managers. And so, you know, one thing led to another and I was the head of product and I got promoted uh, first to director of product, built a team, grew that out for a while uh, in terms of product managers. Eventually we reorged the design team under me and I was promoted to the, the VP of the vp of product with with design sort of reporting into my um, org and, and you know i grew with the company uh, we grew very quickly and i i had yeah I, what i would what i would tell people at asked at the time is i'd say look if you were to drop me into facebook right now i couldn't be the vp of product at facebook one because they're at a fundamentally different scale than we're at and two because i, I don't know anything about facebook but i know everything about flexport and so, at this moment in time, I'm the right person for this job. Um, and I found myself justifying this often because I was quite young. Uh, and you know, it worked out for quite a long time. and it was, it was really an incredible journey. So,
0: tell me about the moment, or it's not necessarily a moment, but it's a, a trend of moments where you, you started to find product market fit, and then you were post-product market fit. Um, what was it like managing, um, I don't know if you necessarily like managed the product, uh, but like you oversaw the product, right? As you hit product market fit, like what happened? What did it feel like? And how did your role, how did everything change once you kind of really started to take off?
1: You know, there's not really, there's not a discrete moment where that happens. It's just every day you get dragged further and further and further out by your customers and all of a sudden it's like things just sort of feel like they're snowballing and it was I remember having these conversations with people they'd be like do we have product market fit and I'd be like I I think we have product market fit with this little segment but we're trying to get product market fit with that segment this new segment because as a product manager you know and I've had a head of product what you're always trying to do is make sure that you are eating more market share within the, the segments of the uh, market that you're already addressing, and looking outwards horizontally and saying, what segments of the market are we not yet addressing, and, and how might we build incremental product or net new product in order to satisfy that demand? And you know there was these moments where it was pretty clear that we sort of got over the threshold in a specific segment, and it would snowball. Um, for a while at least and then new product demands would come in and we would find new problems uh, with the existing product in order to satisfy new markets or or new uh, company scales and you know there the the company grew like a thousand x or something insane while i was there and at least on the revenue side or 500x i can't remember it was a lot it grew like an insane amount and you know you're just kind of on this totally nuts roller coaster and it doesn't stop it just keeps going you expect that things are going to get easier as you become more successful and it turns out that things actually become dramatically more difficult just in very different ways so you start to feel very you know blessed that this worked um but also way more stressed because running a big company is much harder than running a small company regardless of success uh yeah, I mean, it's, it's an experience that I think is addicting. It's, it's just really incredible, and I hope to do it again.
0: So it's kind of interesting because I feel like my – so my day job, uh, um, I just got a job, I don't know, like two months ago at this company called uh, Prenda, and it is definitely very early inklings of – I don't know how much I can say, but it's growing very quickly. It's like it's doing very well, and I'm brought, I was brought in as like a very early growth hire. Um, and it is like, I don't know, it's a small growth team, small marketing team. And I'm just like, wow, what an opportunity to make an impact and potentially help build, you know, a very big company. If you were me, um, or you can just kind of think back to what you did, how would you take advantage of a situation where you are blessed with an early, uh, early employee spot on the growth team at a, at a startup that's working? Um, what would you do if you were me to kind of optimize for the best outcome and help grow the company as much as I can?
1: Eliminate that's not my job from your vocabulary and just jump in, right? One of the values that we had at Flexport that was the way that we did our value setting was we operated the company for a while, and the CEO at some point paused and said, Let's look at the things that we're doing that we think are successful and institutionalize those as our core company values. And one of those was fill the gap, which meant that at a small company, there's always gaps. There's a lot of things that should be getting done that aren't getting done. And if you put on your strategic prioritization hat and look at the set of things that aren't getting done, just choose one that you think you can have a huge impact on and just go and do it. I guarantee you that if you solve a big problem for the company at an early stage startup, you're almost destined to get praised and promoted. If you don't, and instead you get scolded or reprimanded, you should quit because that's a toxic culture at a bigger company. You know, you probably shouldn't do that because frankly, someone else is probably working on it and you just didn't know that they were working on it and stepping on someone's toes is blah, blah, blah. I mean, good not to do that at a tiny company, dive right in, solve problems, grow the business, take ownership, be, be an authority, be a leader. And I don't think that that can really really go wrong for you. Now, clearly, don't don't do someone else's job if they're doing it. Uh, don't you know? You don't want to steamroll anybody. Uh, you just want to contribute where no one else is contributing.
0: Yeah, that's great advice, and I really like it. Thank you. Um, so, a couple more questions for you. Then we're gonna wrap it up. I really appreciate all your all your time and insight on the podcast. Um, last last couple of questions is back on your company placement. Um, one, uh, what are your, what's the grand vision? What's the grand plans? And if you looked out a decade or if you're, you know, however big of a thinker you are, like look that far out and what will you have built? What's the vision for your company?
1: Our goal is to have everybody in America have an agent representing their best interests. The power balance between companies and employees really has shifted, but hasn't been unlocked. So we're coming in and trying to build this whole new market of managing candidates' careers, of talents' careers over the long term. If you think about it, in the past, you had one of two institutions looking out for you. You either joined a very large company with an expectation of near lifetime employment, they put you on a track and you knew that if you showed up in the morning and you did your best, that by the time you were 65, you'd retire with a gold watch and a pension. And if you didn't have that, you worked for probably a labor union. Uh, You worked for in some blue collar work for some large geographically important firm and you had a labor union that was Looking out for your long term training and your negotiations and th- being there for you in a way that was productive. Um, those two sort of social compacts are gone. Uh, increasingly, few people work for labor unions. And frankly, in a world dominated by many firms with many different talent in cities, you don't need to have monopolistic labor fighting monopolistic employers because you vote by leaving you vote with your feet. If you don't like what your employer is doing, if you don't like how they're paying you, you don't need to ask the labor union. You just go work for the firm down the street. So that, for, or that sort of social construct is gone. And the construct of lifetime employment is gone. And I don't think that it's a bad thing either. I think that net-net, it's very good for society, for companies to be able to take on employees and for those employees to be able to take off. It's good for innovation to cross-pollinate between firms. But what this does is it leaves everybody with so much more work in managing their career over the long term. This is what placement aims to do. We aim to create a new institution that replaces the promise of lifetime employment, that replaces the need for a labor union, that's built ground up for the modern employee in the modern economic context to help you maximize your economic earning potential while not having to spend hours upon hours or weeks upon weeks, or in some cases, months upon months, figuring out what your next career move should be. We're there for you, and we're there for that. So and to that end, we don't, we don't uh, partner with companies on a commercial basis to take placement fees. We only work for the candidate, we fight for the candidate, we fight for talent. Um, we monetize with the income share agreement so that we're fully aligned with them. And yeah, this is all we think about all day, every day.
0: If, I feel like, if there were companies running on like, you know, how awesome visions are and how well a founder can portray it, you would get my vote. Yeah. That is an awesome vision. That you're just, you're describing. And uh, I uh, I'm very excited to watch it, uh, to watch it unfold and happen. And with that, I have my final question to make your vision happen. You're obviously going to need some help along the way. And you got a whole community of listeners on the podcast that I already know this question is coming, um, so my question is: How can the forward-thinking founders community help you? Do you have an ask for anyone listening or me um, that you you need assistance with that that we might be able to help with?
1: I got three. First, if you or somebody you know is truly a world-class designer. Uh, focused in on consumer product design, ideally with mobile experience, hit me up. Um, I'm at Sean Linehan on Twitter. I'm Sean at placement.com on uh, email. We're looking to hire somebody in San Francisco to help us with product design. Currently, it's all me. And uh, I'd like to find somebody that's significantly better than myself to to take that over. Two, if you are interested in hiring World-class talent, hit me up, hello at placement.com. We don't partner with companies directly or take any fees, but if you have job listings that you're having a hard time filling, let us know, and we can potentially send you candidates as they come our way. Uh, And three, if you know anybody, or if this person is you, who is incredibly talented, underpaid, and would like to live in a high-growth city, or already live in a high-growth city, Check out placement.com, sign up, get your earning power report and we'll see if we can work with you. We are extremely selective right now, not based on whether or not we think you're awesome. We have so many incredible people sign up. Uh, It's just really a function of right now whether or not we think we can add unique value to your career. Um, And like I said earlier, we're always working to increase the definition of what that means and increase our own capabilities. Um, So yeah, sign up if 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 you'd like us to to sort of take the reins on on managing your career.
0: All right, there it is. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm fascinated with what you're building and I'm intrigued to see what happens and watch your vision unfold. So thanks again for coming on.
1: Yeah, happily. Thanks so much for, for chatting.
0: This has been fun. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did enjoy it, and you have enjoyed previous episodes, and you by chance would want to meet a good amount of the guests I've had on the podcast, then you should come to the Forward Thinking Founders Meetup. If you listen to the beginning of this episode, you know how to attend, how to get information. But if you forgot, all you have to do is become an angel investor in the podcast for $10 a month or for $100 a year. You get access to all our in person events and online communities and premium content it's a hell of a deal and let me be honest it really supports me as a creator so if you're interested in meeting some of the guests and me your host at this meetup in san francisco late january go to glow.fm slash f20r and let's make it happen hope you have a great rest of your day and i will see you tomorrow peace